It's October the 16th, 2019. This is 508, a show about Worcester. I'm Mike Benedetti. This is Brendan Mellican. Hi, Brendan. Shaking, brother. Oh, not too much. You know, Brendan, before we start the show this week on October the 16th, I want to round up the headlines with Worcester in 60 seconds. Go. The city's two tallest buildings have been sold, the 24-story Skymark Towers apartment building at Maine and Austin to a Los Angeles firm for $28.8 million, and the 24-story Worcester Plaza Tower glass office building at Maine and Pleasant to a Boston firm for $16.5 million. The Worcester City Council will not attempt to change the date of Halloween. We didn't have a Columbus Day parade this year, but we should have next year. Two people attempted to rob the Worcester Five Cent Savings Bank on Chandler Street, but left partway through and were arrested a few hours later. A 17-year-old man was shot in the hip on Harlow Street. People were charged in Worcester Federal Court with selling drugs in non-federal court for illegal firearm sales. Reassuring the Worcester Redevelopment Authority, the owner of the Great Wall Building on Main Street says it's been fixed up and should be open before the end of the year. And the new owner of the Midtown Mall has announced renovation plans for his many buildings on the block. 12 Front Street, 22 Front Street, 44 Front Street, and 250 Commercial Street around the corner. Finally, the legendary Green Street Dive Bar and Craft Beer Mecca, the Dive Bar, will be closing. The bar does not have a long-term lease, and a relative of the owner would like to open a restaurant in the space. Well done. Yes. Um, I'm just going to scoot this here. You, uh, where am I going? Just less in your face. Oh, okay. Um, um, Sky, the uh, glass building downtown? Yes. What, what do we call that? Do we just call that the it's, glass building? It's the Worcester Plaza Tower. Okay. Have you ever been to the uh, top floor of that? I have. Up where the old restaurant used to be? I have. That's pretty amazing. That's the one thing that I hope that the new owners figure out a way to bring back, is I feel like we need some bougie restaurant overlooking the city of Worcester with uh, big shag carpets, and uh, it's going to be like the 70s. We're going to rebuild the 70s from the top floor down. I think that's the only spot that I've been to in the city that was like a supervillain's lair. Yeah. Because like you come up in the elevator and there's about a two-story area where that sort of slanting piece is cutting off part of the roof yep. so there's kind of an atrium there there's a bunch of gigantic mirrors at weird angles right there like all the walls are mirrored in there yeah um it's really blinding apparently it's actually extremely blinding mm-hmm. uh in the morning when the sun is coming up like there's sort of no direction that you can look that you're not getting the sun right in your eyes yeah in this weird hall of mirrors up there the two-story high hall of mirrors mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean, this is in some ways this is great news because uh, you know a couple of years ago I was really trying to get an office in that building, high up in that building because the views are really really unique in the city, and um, you just you just couldn't do it because uh, you know like the bank on the ground floor has a certain lease and right. then the ownership is in flux and you know I think it's probably was like this kind of a deal behind the scenes it was mm-hmm. like nobody wants to do anything with new leases and anything until. We just get the owner, the long-term ownership and renovation plan figured out. Well, oddly enough, I remember it was about a year ago, we were coming in to uh, do our show over at Unity Radio, and uh, Gary Rosen was actually in the process of talking about just that, that they had heard a rumor that a lot of the leases were not getting renewed, um, and things, seemed, no, but nobody was really talking about what was happening. Well, Clearly, I can tell you, I can tell you, like, I, I can tell you, I got a lot more than a rumor, which was that the real estate uh, representative for the building told me this, you know, <laughs> and not not in any kind of a secret way, told me this as somebody he doesn't really know. Yeah, that, yeah, that that was happening. Well, you should have told Gary; it would have cleared things up on air instead of fostering I mean, Gary, a rumor. Gary probably does have a supervillain layer in the city. He just has a different supervillain layer that we we unfortunately probably will never get to go into. It's yeah, 
covered in all the walls are covered in combs and hot dogs. <laughs> it's rubber uh, rubber floors and uh, speed bumps. So you don't uh-huh. you don't run too fast <laughs> through the supervillain lair. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's cool. Like so, you know, there like there's that apartment building at Maine in Austin, and there's that glass tower at Maine and Pleasant, and they're basically both 24 stories tall. They're basically yeah. exactly the same height. Um, the apart the apartment building, of course, is selling for like. Uh, Almost twice as much. Yeah, no, that's one of the interesting things. That it, well, <clears throat> the thing that I, I, I think is really cool is that we're putting big value on our taller buildings. Because if there's yes. any one criticism that I hear from outsiders about Worcester, beyond the fact that we're supposed to be a college town and everything seems to be closed by 9 o'clock at night, um, is that we don't have a skyline. Like you can, you could kind of be on 290 and just drive by the city and not really notice much of anything unless you were really paying attention. The fact that we're putting on value on up, uh, I think, uh, is meaningful in at least in the sense that oh, like maybe there is some value in going higher as opposed to just sprawl. Yeah, all the, I mean, the, this, the, I feel like one thing that's unfortunate about that uh, Worcester Plaza Tower is that because it is right at the foot of a, a steep hill. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come off as being that t- as tall as it actually is. Right. When you're looking at it from the highway direction. Now, you know, what would come off as a very impressive part of the Western Skyway would be like a giant p- picture of Ron Paul <laughs> or a giant boat Tracy Novick sign as used to be hanging on what is now, I guess, the edge. Yeah. Brad's bold building there. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, a, yeah. But unfortunately, the edge has not continued with that Worcester, that Worcester tradition. Um, you know, um, yeah, the Colum- I don't know if you want to talk about this Columbus Day Parade thing. Um, whoever wrote this up in the in the Telegram, uh, Elaine Thompson in the Telegram really did a great great service in writing up some of the behind the scenes drama and logistics yeah. about this and a little bit about the history that I didn't know. And uh, it's a nice article to, to check out if you if you're at all interested in. I would say getting stuff done in Worcester. It's sort of a general interest article. So there's a, I think there is something worth talking about there, but I just want to be careful because I don't want it to be a knock on uh, the, the organizers of the Columbus day parade, right? Even aside from whether or not we should be calling it Columbus day uh, or, or whatnot anymore. Like the reality is that parades have changed a lot. Like they used to be big urban celebrations, any community, right? Like, and that is, I mean, let's be, let's be reminded of the time in the city of Worcester when, uh, you know, you could have a church picnic and have 3,000 people turn sure. out and it get a tiny blurb in the newspaper. Yeah, I mean, it's like, but those, those kinds of events were huge for uh, the city. You know, I feel like the St. Patrick's Day Parade, like the thing, the reason it sustains itself is not because there's this huge demand for St. Patrick's Day parades in second tier cities. It's that it just happens to coincide with kind of the end of winter. So it's like, it's kind of like our, our one unofficial day to go out and get slobber knockered in public uh as an official end to uh being locked inside all winter right like it doesn't it doesn't have to be the saint patrick's day parade it could be the mr snuffleupagus parade if it happens at that point in march people are still getting getting outside and they're gonna get drunk as a result i actually for the longest time i feel like the, the the biggest problem with our parades is that like and maybe this is just because the 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 organizations behind them haven't changed much in decades but in my mind, in, say, 2019, a pickup truck with a couple banners on the side and somebody standing in the back of the pickup truck does not constitute a float. No. Like, if you want somebody to get excited about your parade, like, I feel like on the inside, we have to be raising the bar a little bit. 
and be doing more and better with them. Like if, if the Macy's Day Parade like has to keep getting bigger and bigger with more obnoxious balloons and right. floats and presentation just to get anybody to pay attention. And you're talking about like on a holiday morning whenever when the whole family's together anyways. Yes. Um, I, I, w- I wish that the organizing bodies would focus less on the crowd that already exists and keeping them hooked and instead try and focus on developing a new crowd by making the parade interesting, any parade. You know, it was interesting in reading Elaine's article, uh, her mentioning that it was an Irishman who started the Worcester Columbus Day Parade. Um, And in some ways, that makes me think about the Columbus Day Parade as sort of like the Worcester Catholic Parade, um, as well as is also the St. Patrick's Day Parade, of course. But then in a post-Catholic Worcester, uh, the idea of like rebooting a Catholic parade is even more difficult. Um, Also reading this this week, the same week that we're seeing the dive bar, announced that it's closing down. Mm-hmm. Um, man, it just feels like a real theme of the city and a real theme of life is just closing. like, <laughs> it's closing. It's like, it's like the slow, you know, it's like these, these different uh, institutions in our lives that for the entire cold war, we assumed were immutable are now like uh, fading away. And sometimes they fade enough that suddenly they're gone. I think the dive bar uh, existed post cold war. Yeah. I mean, the dive bar is not a cold war thing. <laughs> I mean, the, but you know what I mean? Like, it's that there's always a lot of stuff changing. So it's like, there's always like a bar changing or sure. whatever changing, right? Like, uh, I think it's just like all these cold war institutions closing down makes the background level of institutions rising and falling seem more, uh, in stark relief. Yeah. But I, I think there's also something to be said for the idea that, and that might, that's probably the right comparison, right? Be it, it, say a parade that's been around for, since the dawn of time, uh, in, in an institution like the dive bar, right? So in the 25, 20, whatever, 23 years that I've been hanging around the dive bar, it's gone through like four completely different uh, versions of itself, yes. right? It's probably the one venue in the city of Worcester that has stayed ahead of the curve in terms of giving cut. You know, the old saying, uh, the customer's always right. Yes. Like people really don't give that a lot of thought. And they, they tend to think that it means that like, don't argue with your customer, right? Like that when they're telling you something's wrong, that like, they're always right. That's not what the term means. It's like in terms of sales, like you have to be providing your customer with the ser- the products and services that they actually desire. Not like, right. no, what you want. Like if you're, right. what, if you're a cheeseburger guy, but your, per- your customer's coming to your store to buy socks because the store is called Sock Emporium, but all you have for sale is cheeseburgers, it's probably not going to work out. The dive bar is is one of those, maybe the only institution in my mind in Worcester that was doing what customers wanted, oftentimes before those customers even knew what they wanted, right? Like okay. the craft beer thing, right? Like when they switched over to craft beer only, like that would you had the majority of bar owners in Worcester laughing at them, like quiet, not so quietly saying, "Oh, they'll be out of business in a year." Not that they were going to change the landscape of the way we drink in in yes. cities, not just in Worcester, everywhere. Um, um, I mean, we should say for people who never went to this bar, which that's totally fine. Like, even though it was called the Dive Bar, and even though at certain incarnations it was yep. a dive bar, uh, and even though in some ways in maybe some minor ways it remained a dive bar. It was like an amazingly sophisticated beer bar. Yeah. This was like kind of the irony of the name. Stuff that you, you I mean, you know, the, the one that comes to mind would be the, the lines that they had from Hill Farmstead that you just weren't going to find anywhere other than the Hill Farmstead farm in Vermont. Uh, their product isn't available anywhere else. It's, I have a really good friend who's a brewer in Europe 
and he's from Worcester originally. He came back to visit fa- the f- visit family. The dive bar, which is a place that he used to hang out in the 90s, was the only place that he wanted to go because he met the brewers from Hill Farmstead at a conference in Europe. And when they told him, like, oh, yeah, we, the only place we really have our product is in Worcester, Massachusetts. It was like his mind was blown. Um, but it's, I guess, the comparison to, like, the parades, right? Like, parade, parade organizers don't seem to realize that uh, what constitutes entertainment has has evolved over time, right? So what, yeah. what we found entertaining in the 40s uh, might not necessarily be uh, what we find entertaining in 2019 onward. So change a little bit or even uh, try and guess, you know, take a risk and try and guess what people, what trends people are going to be looking for in terms of entertainment and go that direction. Make a bold statement. Dive bar, that's what they did. And it worked out fantastically for its fan base. It was a great bar. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I'll say that I have slightly say this too, like, um, you know, I stopped drinking heavily 10 years ago mm-hmm. and this more or less coincided with me stopping going there, but I went there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times when I went there. So this is definitely somebody when I'm complaining about this or saying, you know, RIP the dive bar, um, you know, let's pour one. Out. I don't, I don't want to say let's pour one out cause that's an expensive beer. <laughs> <laughs> you should just drink that for the dive bar. But, um, yeah, I mean like this is from somebody who hasn't been to the dive bar seriously in like a decade. Right. So it's not like, yeah, and in some ways, it's also me just like mourning the loss of my 30s. In some ways, whenever I'm complaining about this, I'm really complaining less about the dive bar in circa 2019 and some sort of notional dive bar that I experienced back in the day. Wait, but I and I but I think there's some some value there too. I, I was getting kind of a kick out of reading a lot of the statements from much younger cats, like people in their 20s online, who yeah. were like really bummed out this place was closing. And the one theme that I kept reading from people was when I moved to Worcester, and it was mostly females. When I moved to Worcester, this was the one bar I felt safe going to by myself. And I met friends because I felt safe going there by myself. What was interesting, though, was when I started hanging out there in the late nine, mid to late 90s, uh, it also was one of those places that I felt safe going to myself by myself, but it was utter chaos, but it was also a different yeah. time, right? Like, that, I think that's the thing. It's like when you walked in the door in the late 90s, there could be... <coughs> a dozen young women dancing on the bar. Like it was, there would be fights everywhere. It was chaos, but it was perfectly appropriate for Worcester in 1998. That is exactly what the city of Worcester wanted, needed and demanded. And our sense of what going out for the night was very different. Uh, And again, that's all I'm getting at is when it comes to that evolution, they did it uh, effort. It seemed effortless the way that they evolved over time. And, and there are like distinct periods there where it went from this extremely raucous venue uh, to a pretty subdued, chill place just to hang out with buddies and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, it's not easy to make that transa- transition. I feel like that's something that we, we take for granted when it comes to the way we judge business owners is the ability to see what's coming in terms of trends is not an easy thing to do. And when somebody is able to do it four times in a row and hit it out of the park all four times, like that's something special. Again, just going back to talking about the parade. I feel like that's one of the things we, we, we get wildly wrong here. Think not everything has to die on the vine. Uh, when it does, it's usually either because a, it was just the right time and the people were, were done. People involved were done or because the people who were involved didn't realize that the world was evolving around them. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, and in some ways this is less, this is more bittersweet and less bitter of a closing too, because like, uh, uh, Alec and Sherry have like the arms be Abbey. They have like other venues in the city that are like outlets for their vision of mm-hmm. dining in Worcester. So it's not like, 
oh, this bar is closing and now, and the owner is 85 and now his amazing wizened whatever will be gone from the scene. It's like, there's already like that scene or, or an outlet for that vision. Um, you know, I, I think about like, you know, Our Lady of Mount Carmel was just demolished, right? Like, uh, if there had, you know, if there was another really vibrant, awesome looking, historic Catholic, Italian Catholic church on Shrewsbury street. And it was just like, well, people like, you know, we had to close this one down, but there's this other one, which is like, just like does so many of the same things. I think it would be more of a, just like, all right, like you, you win yeah. some, you lose some, like, all right, you know, that building was falling apart, whatever. But when it's like the only one and when it's destroyed, it's like that one is gone. Yep. That really hits a lot harder. Oh, totally. But it's also indicative, I think, the, at least the potential, and and you see this in almost any trend piece that's written about buying habits when it comes to nightlife for millennials, Gen Z, whatever the case may be, that the buying habits are changing now, right? So it, it had been essentially a constant in uh, the bar scene, the alcohol industry, that you were always going to have consumers for alcohol in bars, uh, and it would be a growing number of people year after year for decades now that does seem to be something that's changing, uh, not in Worcester nationally, right? That, that the trends are people are drinking less, uh, alcohol consumption is down, uh, and expectations are changing. And, you know, we just might be at a point too, where our, our old guys, uh, idea of what a bar or bar culture looks like is just so much in flux right, right. now that that whole scene is going to change, uh, over time. Like, I'm actually really curious to see what happens over the next year or two when Massachusetts starts bringing its, uh, social consumption licenses for marijuana online to see how that actually changes the, the, the bar industry. Cause like, then you would have the weed equivalent of a bar. Yeah. And, and is it possible that we've hit a point in the United States where people would rather sit around and, and smoke a joint or hit a bong with friends or, or you know, or, or hit dabs with, with friends than smash expensive beer? I don't know, but it'll be really cool to see how the market shakes itself out on that front. I want to, I want to flip over to, I want to do commodities news real quick and then go on to the news story, which kind of uh, weirded me out the most this week and which I think you have a lot of, you could comment about, but first Brent crude oil is $59 a barrel unchanged on the week and down 28% on the year. Bitcoin is $8,000 down 7% on the week and up 27% on the year. I feel like both of the, the Bitcoin trends, especially just seem to be whatever's going on that month. Not, no, no sort of long-term trends with Bitcoin these days, except that it, it did not totally fall apart when it looked like it might. Now, Brendan, according to a school department survey, and this I got from an article in the Telegram, so God bless the Telegram and the Gazette, uh, half of Worcester students do their homework on their phone. Mm -hmm. So first of all, this was not the highlight of this article that I was reading, but this is the thing where I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? So the second part of this is that 25% of Worcester students have no technology at home suitable for doing homework. Yeah. And so I guess they're doing their this like after school at a computer or at some other internet cafe, something like an internet cafe, the library, their friend's house. I don't mm -hmm. know where they're doing their homework. Anyway, uh, the idea that, and I, you know, I was just talking to somebody who um, like, they actually have like a shortage of computers in the classroom. And so the teacher is like, Hey, like maybe some of you guys can be using your smartphones yep. now. And, uh, this person is a non-abusive parent and so thus their child has no smartphone. Mm -hmm. So this is a sort of a weird, this is a sort of weird conundrum for them. We should mention that the school department's planning to get another 50,000 Chromebooks soon. And so probably this problem will be alleviated, uh, at least in the classroom. Yeah. Um, half of, so all, basically everybody does all of their homework on some sort of computer interface. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's a significant portion of it. You know, the only thing that I was really going to add to that was I, I think one of the problems that a district the size of Worcester faces is everything from an administration perspective needs to be about control, right? Like, and, and rightfully so to some extent, yes. you've got a huge system that you need to manage. You can't, it can't, you can't have the appearance of just everything being freewheeling and whatnot. But I, I feel like the districts that have had the most success when it comes to technology in the classroom, and let's just stick with the, the, the reality part that the majority of students are using technology to get their work done it's the bring your own device uh, model that works. And then you backfill yeah. that with some degree of district support. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know, like the look on your face when you say 25% of students are doing all their work on their phone. Like, no, no, no. 50% of oh, students, 25% of this, their students like don't have anything at their home to do their homework 50% on. 50% are on their phone. I mean, in some ways this reminds me you know, of the old, the old, uh, but that's you know, not the, weird to me. That's like, I don't do, I don't use a computer for much of anything except like when I need to work on a spreadsheet and I, mean, I need like multiple spreadsheets open yeah. at once. Like I actually have a, I, I should, wish I had known we were going to talk about this. I would have brought it in. Like in my backpack, I keep a Bluetooth keyboard that my, from Logitech that my phone has a little tray that my phone sits in. And I do all, most of my writing and work on my phone, just on a tiny little screen. Cause it's like, I just get closer. Cause that's one of the beautiful things about screens, right? Like you only need a giant screen if it's far away, if it's close, yeah. it's, that's how perspective works. Um, I actually still think it's weird as to how dependent we are on laptops in the United States. Like, yes. and I think a lot of that is like an age based thing where, you know, who are the people that are making the, the IT decisions at the Worcester public schools? They're probably around in our, our age or older. They're in their forties and their fifties and whatnot. So for them, a laptop is the natural fit when the reality is we went from laptops to tablets, to phones being the primary device for people to work on a long time ago. Yeah. And you're talking about kids who have incredible thumb dexterity from typing as a kid, because most kids do have smartphones. Yes. So their ability to get work, they're typing at a faster rate on their smartphones. They also have better eyesight generally than older people do. They certainly have better eyesight when they're young than they will when they're old. Sure. But I mean, like the real, but we're not talking about old people. We're talking about kids and what they want to use. And like, I feel like this is one of those areas where, so like we can't have our, we don't allow kids to have their phones be a part of the school day because we're worried about the distractions right, and like, the texting. Right, like aren't they, they're right, they have to like put them in a drawer or whatever, or whatever else they're they going to be do, taken from but the... But it kind of misses the point because that's the tool they're most comfortable with in terms of getting stuff done. So it's... This is sort of like if when we were in school, they were like, listen, kids, you guys are causing problems with your, with your pencils. So you can turn them in at the office when you come into the building. Otherwise, if you get they get found, they're going to get confiscated and returned to you at the end of the year. And then, of course, the work you do at home, you're going to need a pencil for. But leave that pencil at home. <laughs> which is, this is no place for those. Which is the perfect uh, analogy, because when I was in class, I really wasn't doing any work. I was just drawing awful pictures uh, with a pencil or pen and paper, right? Like, I wasn't using those that pencil or in paper to get any work done. I was just was drawing and writing notes and whatnot. I was doing the exact same thing kids would be doing with their smartphones, given the opportunity to. The problem is not the uh, the, the the potential for distraction. It's the lack of engagement uh, that from the kid's perspective as to what's going on in the classroom. The tools are secondary to that, right? Like if, if your kids aren't engaged, that's that's the adult problem. That's not the kid's problem. You don't. It's not ADHD and the need for more medication. That's the adults are not engaging kids well. And I don't know why we don't, we're not comfortable discussing that. You know, it's okay as an adult, Mike, to acknowledge yeah. that kids might find you boring. Oh, I mean. Like I know they find, I, I own one and I know he finds me very boring. That's okay. 
Well, anyway, I mean, this in, in some ways, this is sort of, I mean, yeah, I just sort of was taken aback by this, 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 this world of everybody does their homework on their phone. For some reason, again, I thought that at least we were forcing kids to use a lot of laptops or something goofy like that, or that maybe the homework we were giving them was pencil and paper homework. And that that I when do they think get though, in the classroom, that's when the laptop comes in. That's the other side of this, though, that I think is, in, is important to discuss. If we, we know we're going to have a, a bundle of kids in the school that might not have the resources for any technology, we can't allow those kids to get left behind by society. That's where I think the school district should be stepping in to make sure that the devices uh, are available for those kids. So when my son was at Forest Grove, I know the, um, so they would have like a cart of uh, Chromebooks that would be available for use for the students in school. But like what they didn't have was a plan to recognize that some of the kids already had their own laptops. Again, going back to the bring your own device thing. Yeah. So like my son's always had a Chromebook. That's a, I'm kind of like a Google person. So like, He's, that's all he's ever had for a laptop was a Chromebook. Him using a school Chromebook in school instead of being able to bring his own Chromebook into school and log into uh, you know a, a Google for Classroom uh, account yeah. on his own Chromebook misses the point entirely because the kid who actually had access to the technology was taking technology away from kid who a kid who doesn't have access right. to the technology. Like, like your son should just be, they should just be like, forget it, forget it, kid. You already got a Chromebook. Bring that to school and, you know, right. use that tool that your parents have the, the had the ability to provide for and you. And we'll give and that Chromebook you're using in school to one of these kids. Who one of the no other technology. kids. And I think a lot of districts have had pretty good use with that where, you know, around you pick a grade third grade fourth grade or whatnot where you bring technology in uh on the elementary level for students um and you you give some degree of ownership for it right like you can get the, there's insurance policies that are available and that that device can then travel with the student throughout their entire time uh in the public school system but yeah i, I and i'm not knocking the worcester public schools for this i know it's a huge problem because it's there's not a <coughs> a one size fits all approach to a district this size, but you can do better. And I think part of the, the way you do better is by giving a little bit more latitude to the students themselves and the technology they use. You know, the, one of the uh, school technologists who was interviewed in the article uh, expressed his surprise that I think it was him, his surprise at how high this number was saying something like, like 15 or 20% we would have understood, but like 25, 26% is significantly higher than we thought it was. So yeah, also like the school, like recognize has has recognized this for a while has been working on this for a while I'm sure like this again is not to criticize the school department nope. this is just as, this is just as far as this like institutional change idea but that is I think that what that last statement is something that you shouldn't be allowed to be surprised by if you work for the school department right because like we also know that there's a significantly high proportion of students who are homeless in the public school system, right? Like yeah. that's like turning around. And I think that's kind of what the administration's reaction was like, well, that's a, that's a higher number than we thought. Like, well, you shouldn't because there, we do have a relatively poor, large, poor population in the city. And that's something that we should be focused on, not just putting on the blinders and saying, well, these Chromebooks only cost a hundred bucks. Everyone should be able to afford one. Like, well, there, there are clearly going to be some families that have their priorities in a different place, like stable housing, well, and I'll tell you the truth. Like, I mean, the, the you know, I always think of a probably a weird uh, slice of the students, and probably a, hopefully a very small slice of the students. I think of the students who I'm aware of who it's like 
there's like junkies and people like that, like in and out of their house all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, if the school gives you a Chromebook, that Chromebook is going to get stolen by some dirtbag adult in your life. That's where I think, you know, more than your pencil would be. Your pencil has very little resale value drug wise. And that's, that part is where I I think it is fair to acknowledge that there are challenges that the school department is not qualified or capable of dealing with. Yes. But not being able, not being, not being cognizant of those, those challenges in the first place. I think does lend itself to this bigger conversation we're having in the city that how well does the administration fully understand its student population? And that's a complete, that's a separate from technology. They understand better than I do. Yeah. I mean, we have a couple minutes left if we want to do a half hour show. Um, Man. Yeah. And I just feel like the rest of this news is just kind of dumb news. Did you say we're not changing Halloween? We're not changing Halloween. I mean, this was a suggestion that we are going to, oh, let's celebrate Halloween on a day when it's logistically easier. And uh, I think everybody else in the city council or most of the people in the city council were like, we're not going to do it. First of all, we're not going to do it in two weeks before Halloween. Mm. Uh, and second of all, I hope that there was a lot of reaction of just like, what are you talking about? That one, yeah, that like, one was kind of dumb. Like the stupid city council does not need to be like the boss of Halloween in Western. We talked about this a little bit after the primary. Uh, I know you love talking about your your theory of a post-Catholic Worcester. I, I think after this primary, where like 4% of the city population turned out to vote, like we need to be viewing ourselves as a post-political Worcester. And this is a perfect example of this. <coughs> like maybe, you know, like maybe what we do do is allow the... We allow the city council to change the day of Halloween, and then we trick or treat whenever the hell we want to. Because like what they're doing is just completely irrelevant to our lives as uh, a city. And I think that's we kind of start have to start viewing the city that way. Like how, how much is happening at the average city council meeting? Not talking about the city manager's office at a city council meeting. Like what's actually taking place there that truly impacts the lives of Worcester residents? I mean. You know, oversight over the business of city government is the only thing. It's just being like, well, here's a here's a big grant or here's a big whatever that we've been working on for a long. The city administration is working on it for a long time, and now the city council has to acknowledge, okay, there's six hundred thousand dollars coming from, uh, you know, the Department of Housing mm-hmm. uh, to do such and such a thing, and the city council just has to be like, yeah, we'll vote that that's okay. Sure, but going which, back which to is those, fine. Going back to the sale of the uh, the the glass tower downtown, right? Like it was a year ago. That uh, unbeknownst to all of us, Mike Benedetti knew exactly what was happening there, but City Councilor Gary Rosa I was on air of creating were, a conspiracy theory about the place. And I mean, I think thousands of people in the city of Worcester knew that something was going on. Anybody who's like <laughs> no. not a city council member, I mean, but like, why but are that's they talking? My point is that yeah, I mean, like, are we? Are we? Maybe we. Either we should, either we have to actually just start pointing and laughing really loud at some of this stuff because there are bigger issues to deal with in the city of Worcester than the day that Halloween is celebrated. <laughs> like if that if we've taken care of all the other problems in in Worcester, then fine, we'll we'll work on that one. But we haven't. So like maybe it's either the time that we either just point and laugh or just ignore them altogether. You know, I thought you were going to say, and you didn't. I wish the snow ghost was on this week. I feel like in some ways we were entering a post horror Worcester. Um, <laughs> You know that I saw one local journalist soliciting ideas for like what are some creepy stories like Halloween type type stories about Worcester uh, that haven't really been covered, and I think that the thing about traditional Halloween or traditional horror is that it's like a combination of two things. One is that it's things which are uh, occult things terrifying to Christians, so like witches and stuff, witches and <laughs> demons, and the idea that on the thirty first is the time when the veil between this world and the next is the thinnest, so we have to do all the stuff to keep the dead people dead, right? Like this is so far, we're in a much secularized culture where a ton of people, especially young people, do not, are not actually scared of witches, are not actually scared of the demonic. 
Um, they just like candy and dressing up like Spider-Man. They just want to goof around. Right. But so there's no <laughs> horror in the like, actually, you, you can't get it horror that way. Right. Talking about Worcester and witches or some sort of thing at a grave or something. And the other part of, of traditional, I feel like traditional spooky Worcester Halloween stories is that it's going to be a bunch of stuff about like mass murder and, uh, you know, or like people being abused or whatever. And like, there was a time when you could be like, oh, this is kind of creepy, but it happened 200 years ago, whatevs. And now I feel like we're in a time where like, I mean, where I think once you start talking about like, what was the biggest killing in the city of Worcester, you start having to say things like, probably it was either of Nipmucks or yeah. by the Nipmucks. Yeah. It was probably like an orgy, an orgy of rape and child slaughter. It mm-hmm. was probably terrible. Yeah. So like, but far you, enough removed where it's not something but that's, you can't write something fun and goofy about right. horror in Worcester. Somebody yeah. killed their goat or something. It's, it's horrifying. So, so, and like the real horror that I feel like a horror movie is showing us is either like, this is either this extremely gruesome stuff, which is only goofy in a very uh, controlled setting or is extremely disturbing in some other way. Like it's about zombies or something, yeah. which there's no, you can't, there's no story about zombies in Worcester. I mean, Asa Needle, I mean, has <laughs> written some beautiful essays for happiness pony about Worcester and various horror monsters, including zombies. But like, these are think pieces and these guys are not looking for think pieces. They're looking for like, how can I tell you some creepy Halloween stuff? And in some ways it's like, um, I'm glad you've given this a lot of thought. Cause I really well, I, feel this fits your narrative about a post Catholic Worcester. Well, Cause y- you that, know, yeah, the demo- <coughs> witches in the demonic are no longer the existential crisis for a, a city like Worcester, right? Like, and well, I know that sounds uh, yeah. silly, but there was a time not too long ago when for a significant portion of the city of Worcester, the demonic was actually the thing that would keep people awake at night. Like we were alive during our last satanic panic, right? Like in the United States, a lot of which originated here in Massachusetts uh, in the 80s, uh, something that never existed, right? Like it is not a, even a thing. But let, like, me, let me tell you too, like, I mean, I'm a person who believes in demons and I certainly, much of my thinking about bad things in the world is through, uh, you can call it a metaphor, you can call it whatever you want, is the idea of demons. Now, is that why you, you keep doing the show with me, is just to keep me close so you can keep an eye? In on some ways, okay. yeah. yeah. But like, I mean, whenever I'm talking to people with addiction and they start talking about how they feel like they've been possessed by a demon, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's fine. Like, I mean, I feel like the Bible does not have a lot of like detailed information about what a demon is. Right. So could a demon be an addiction? Is, you know, sure, why not? Like, could a demon manifest as addiction? Sure, why not? Like, is a demon something which has to have, like, political opinions or something? Like, <laughs> your addiction to play doesn't have political opinions, but in other ways, your addiction is completely biblically a demon. So, you know, I'm totally cool with this. Um, but, uh, you know, I think about Halloween, like I would think about Christmas, right? Which is, like, our traditions of Christmas. And maybe, again, the younger generation is all doing all Christmas stuff on their phone, so I'm totally misunderstanding. But at least for my generation... Uh, there are two sources for what are valid Christmas rituals. Mm-hmm. And one of them is whatever the baby boomers did as kids, of course. And that right. will probably echo for a long, like all the famous Chris, all the beloved Christmas songs are Christmas songs that came on the radio during when the baby boomers yeah. were small. That's just the way it's going to be. The second thing is um, Christmas traditions that Charles Dickens was intentionally trying to revive by mentioning them in a Christmas carol. So like, like Christmas traditions in England from the pre-Victorian era, the mm-hmm. Victorians were anxious about losing in their newly urbanized world. And so we're like trying to like revive. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's like early, I'm gonna, like early 1800s British stuff or American baby boom stuff. 
These are our two classifications. So if you're like, I want to write about some, some Christmassy Worcester stuff, it's like, great. You can write about stuff people were doing in the Worcester in the early 1800s, or you can write about stuff people were doing about Christmas in Worcester in 1955. Mm-hmm. And nothing else is going to be Christmassy in that in that time-honored classic way, like Halloween-y in that time-honored yeah. classic way. No, I can like appreciate these things, that. These things are very, come out of a very specific context. And uh, it's amazing that we were able to create these holidays and cultural rituals out of these very specific things and that they have spread throughout the culture so much. But yeah, like you can't, I mean, you know. See, for me, Christmas is, is I, I like to fall back on the whole idea that um, the the origin of Christmas comes from uh, the, the love that Nordic reindeer have of the fly agaric mushroom uh, and that the reindeer would get so high from eating the fly agaric mushroom right before winter that they would be leaping and dancing all they, over the they'd place. They would be jumping and, off of cliffs as though they could fly. Uh, and yeah, it was just crazy time. Hitting, and, the, hitting and the ground below as though they could fly. That's where you get fly. Santa Claus and his, his flying reindeer from. We're yeah. just from the crazy. I, I, didn't, I didn't even know there was a, a, a Christian backstory to all of this, Mike. I was just, I, mean, I, I mean, just thought I mean, it was me, about I mean, uh, reindeer on mushrooms. I mean, and, obviously, there's like, there's like the big Christian, uh, I mean, there's obviously like a huge Christian tradition of Christmas too. Mm-hmm. But whenever, again, Whenever you're a news reporter being like, I want to write about something Christmassy for my news outlet, yeah. you're probably not like, I want to talk about the incarnation or I want to talk about how people in North Africa did it in like 1155 yeah. or something, which are totally interesting, but they're not like American Christmas. Like right. American Christmas is this weird truce with the secular that we have where we talk a lot about <laughs> Jesus, but only in certain ways. And it's mostly, again, <laughs> early 1800s British stuff slash 1950s American stuff. Yeah. Those are the two. Those are the two categories that are legit. Seem that seem legitimately Christmassy. I love that you, you just use that phrase. That or something on people's phone, I guess. Truce with the uh, the secular. Because I mean, while you were talking, all I could think of was when I went, when I used to go down. My mother is from Webster, and uh, Webster used to have this amazing nativity scene on their common in front of their town hall every yes. year. And um, I'm sure they probably still do. But it, I don't. It was one of those things that in my head as a child, it only existed in Webster, Massachusetts, right? Like, and it could exist in Webster, Massachusetts because Webster was such a relatively homogeneous population in small town going right through the, uh, the, the early eighties that there weren't enough people to complain about a a giant nativity scene on, uh, in front of town hall and whatnot. Whereas like, how long is it like, you know, our, in Worcester, a bigger city, your celebrations about things like Christmas, uh, they do lose that, uh, that value as your, your truce with the secular. <laughs> What's a great phrase. Well, it's, uh, I mean, carries it, on. And it, I'm cool it, with that. Cause it's I'm, a truce I'm between, de- it's a truce between denominations it's a truce too. between us, Mike. I mean, it's a truce, right. It's a truce <laughs> between everybody to be like, all right, what Christmas stuff can we do that we're not going to start like a gigantic fight over. And in the fifties, that w- that the answer to that question was different than it is in the 20 in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but these are all, you know, these things are all truces. None of these things are necessarily so what like kind of eternal truce do we, does the, do the Columbus Day folks need to come up with to get to, to, to get that, that I mean, again? you know, I mean, again, like, man, you know, let me tell you here, man, proud, proud Italian American. <laughs> love it. Love Italy. Love the whole nine. I was thinking a lot of yesterday about the Godfather and, uh, and, uh, my paisan, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. I think about these guys all the time. Like, uh, and I think about the home country all the time. But like, man, like we made a bad decision when we picked out Christopher Columbus because it's like should have taken Spain's lead, Mike. Even Columbus, Spain didn't want the guy. It it's was, like 
you know, it's like if Columbus was like had an awesome beard <laughs> and was like this weird thug, right? And a like pack of, of reindeer or high on mushrooms all the time. And you wanted was- to put up a statue and be like, Columbus, great beard. People would be like, <laughs> okay, right? In the same way that like you can put up a Stonewall ja- Jackson statue. And if you want to be like, this is the beard museum and here's Stonewall Jackson. I don't even know if he had a beard, honestly. I mean, he's from West Virginia and shamedly, or what is now West Virginia, shamedly, I don't know about, much about his beard. I'm assuming he had a beard. Yeah. If you had a picture of him at the Beard Museum, people would be like, great, cool beard. But if you put up a statue of him and you're like military valor or glory or whatever, it's like the problem is that like there's there's only one step or there's zero degrees of separation between like military glory in the service of a treasonous empire of slavery. Okay, <laughs> not good. In the same way, Columbus, it's like awesome navigator. And again, like, man, like you want to talk trash about Columbus, it was the Spanish and it was the English who were hiring all these Italian guys to run their voyages because those people could not see see fair for nothing that's why you get giovanni giovanni caboto aka john cabot and christopher colombo aka christopher columbus doing these pioneering pioneering uh north american things anyway um i can just ramble so much about columbus day anyway i love it but you i i I feel like i have to explain this 99 percent of people listening to this are like i totally get it why are you talking i'm turning off the show turn off the show this is for the one percent of people who are like but really man wasn't columbus like an awesome navigator of like world historical importance and it's like yes but he like immediately was like and this is going to be a cool opportunity for me to be this like gross thug (laughs) so like and his gross thuggery like nobody ever talks about whether columbus beat his i'm sure columbus beat his wife right but like nobody ever talks about this i don't know if we have any documented information he's definitely a wife beater kind of guy so like i'm not making a joke it's definitely true um, even if I don't even, he may not have been married. I don't know. He definitely had kids. Probably beat somebody's wife. He would, he beat a lot of people's wives. I mean, we know that he beat a lot of people's wives and at sure. least in the new world, like that's the problem, right? It's like where the accomplishment and the like disastrous, you know, after impact yeah. are really tight. Or if Columbus was held up as some sort of moral and religious leader and then it turns out, oh, actually he was a terrible person. It's like, yeah. okay, whether or not what he said, like makes a lot of sense philosophically or morally not the right guy to be holding up because his personal life's a disaster. And this is, we we need you, Mike, to be the, the, this this rational voice because as an Irish guy from the west side of Worcester who probably didn't get to the east side until sometime in my late teens, uh, yeah, I can't be the one to speak to this because I still have a parade. Uh, there's a parade right down Park Avenue. That's where your uh, that parade is. People have. Um, so yeah, no, I, I appreciate you sharing your your, yeah, your thoughts. Yeah, and like I don't know. I mean, you know, this is a national issue, right? Which is that like Columbus is sort of indefensible. As a as just in his personal life, Columbus is basically indefensible, and it's like so. It's just like again, like it's okay that we have a bunch of stuff named after well, him. This like though, I think is the District of Columbia, whatever we did it back in the day. But like we can we should we keep celebrating him with a federal holiday, or should we have like whatever you want to call it, Catholics Day, Italian Pride Day? That is what I was just going to say. Too, Defense like, of Religious Freedom Day. Is it possible that we uh, have just moved past the point? similar to being post-Catholic or post-politics in Worcester, that, like, we don't need uh, reasons to have fun. We don't need, like, it doesn't have to be the Columbus Day Parade, right? Like, I think in the words of the great King Missile, we're going to protest because it's Saturday and there's nothing else to do. Uh, Like, we should just have parties and parades because, you know what, what else are we going to do today? (coughs) It's Sunday. We should have a parade. Like, let's go out in the street and get drunk and maybe eat hot dogs or whatever. Like, that's perfectly fine. It doesn't need to be a celebration, especially when your desire to have celebrations around specific people or events are going to end your, the likelihood of you picking a, a, a holiday or a, a specific person who is objectively 
terrible uh, is higher, right? Like if you're just no one, no one gets mad at Sunday. And again, people it, do get mad at Columbus. And again, if you want to talk about cool Italian hats, and you want to have Columbus <laughs> in your museum of cool Italian hats, he can definitely have it because his cool Italian hat is not wrapped up part and parcel with him being a weird thug. Yeah, it's just that like, and there's definitely plenty of Italians who you could have a day cool hats. after. I mean, there's not. There's very few Italians who are world historically. I mean, actually, there. I guess there's a lot of Roman Empire people who are world historically important, just like Columbus. But as far as like. You know, this also gets right into all these questions of like, what is Italy? What did people in Columbus's time understand Italy as being? What did people in late 19th century America understand Italy as being? Right. Right. Like this, this is wrapped up in what all of the these First things. Nations people understand it, Italy as being. Oh, my goodness. So it's like so it's right. So it's like we definitely shouldn't like dump like I feel like we shouldn't dump like the New World genocide on like the Italians. Mm. No way. They were part of it, sure. But like there were- Most of them were not born then. Most of them were not working on it. And there were other countries that were really, really, really committed financially and morally to a new world genocide. More than Italy, for sure. But it's like, in some ways, it sort of feels like maybe there should be a sunset clauses on some of these federal holidays. Like we're going to do Columbus Day for 50 years, and then we're going to decide, maybe do we renew it? And there was a 50-year period where I think Columbus Day- probably longer than 50 years where Columbus Day made a humongous amount of sense in American culture. Sure. It was probably very positive for American culture overall. Yeah. It definitely was part of the like, let's not talk about the massacre of the Indians or let's be weird about talking about the massacre of the Indians. Right. So like uh, in that way it would be negative, but in right. other ways it was very helpful. I think in integrating immigrant groups and sell, uh, giving Catholics a sense of like a, 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 a stake in the game right. and all these other stuff I feel like are probably worthwhile as far as Columbus Day is concerned. But there's a time where you got to be like, all right, all this other stuff's taken care of. Yeah. And now Columbus Day is just the uh, celebration of like this monster. Like <laughs> like, like the non-monster part of Columbus Day is already taken care of. Italian-Americans are immig- integrated into society. Um, Catholicism is like integrated into society. Right. Like yeah, we're people not- know Italians are cool. Dude, we have, uh, we have Italian restaurants in every tiny city in America. We have right. pizza restaurants that have a picture of Frank Sinatra, speaking of monsters, or <laughs> Dean Martin, speaking of saints, on the wall. <laughs> and, you know, are serving a ta- traditional Italian food, man. People love, because Italians have the best cuisine in the world. It, it, we're, we're not the at a point. best music in the world. Where we're concerned about uh, reconciliation post-World War, uh, like a post-Mussolini uh, Italy, right? Like, that's not the concern anymore. Yeah. It actually, it was something I was thinking when we were talking about parades and just being boring it's it actually in a weird way is a nod to uh events like the caribbean festival in worcester who put on a hell of a parade they do right like and i mean if there's anybody uh who's who's looking to reorganize the columbus day parade and columbus landed in what part of the, the caribbean oh dude I mean, marry those two events i mean and, and do something awesome I and mean, talk about a, an opportunity for reconciliation but also taking the lead from people who know how to march down the street proper, right? And that, the Italian Caribbean festival, <laughs> that would be fantastic, or not? I don't know. It could be the worst thing ever, but I think you, I think you, you're at, you get a good starting point to a hell of an event there. That's something we can get around, uh, you know, structure a party around in the city of Worcester. And again, sticking with your theme of like you know a sunset clause on on parades or holidays. We probably should do the same thing with St. Patrick's Day as well, too. Just acknowledge it as like your spring solstice parade. Most of the snow has melted and there's probably only 16 more storms to go. But we got this one nice day in the roughly middle part of March. We're all going to go outside and get lit. 
And that's all. We'll celebrate that. Like, leave all the, the we don't need leprechauns involved because that's kind of weird. Seeing a 70 year old oh, guy. But it's hilarious. I know, but it, it's it, hilarious. I an mean, old man dressed like a leprechaun, annihilated in the middle of March when it's kind of cold out still is, it's, it's weird. It's, all the legends about St. Patrick are hilarious. The few <laughs> things that we know about St. Patrick would probably be some combination of him, you know, spearheading. The snake uh, lobby would like to have a word with you, know, you Michael. I mean, yes. I feel like, I mean, you know, St. Patrick's writing is like, you know, uh, as Scott Schaefer Duffy shows every year at the parade with his giant St. Patrick's banner is just like chock full of like weird, pat, what would come up as weird pacifist stuff to us today. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. you know, his yeah. cultural impact on the island of Ireland, you may be like, ah, oh, Christianity in Ireland bad move, you know. No, no, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, again, the sunset clause, I think is a valuable thing. How many people are are really thinking uh, the history of St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day? They're thinking that this is the first relatively warm day that I can go outside and get drunk in public. Uh, That's, so embrace that. Just let that be its thing. You get to pretend to be like an Irish elf. You get to talk about shillelaghs. You get to be like, Oh, me boyo, or whatever the hell Italian. Yeah, see, but that's the stuff I take Columbus offense to because do that. It's, it's a not problem. a shillelagh. It's a it's an Irish fighting stick. We just we neutered the one one of the cool things that we we used to be able to walk around with little clubs and beat each other with them. And yeah, I don't know. That's Columbus Day is not a day, that, another day when you feel like you're walking down the street saying to people like, "Hey, bambino, manja, manja." That's every day in my household. I say this to the little kids in my house all <laughs> yeah. the time. They never know what I'm talking about. These are your me. people that are going to be angry with you. I'm not I doing know. impressions. Hey, you know, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. All right. We've just talked for like 25 minutes about St. Patrick, about Columbus Day. Just delete that part from your podcast player. <laughs> to open the file in Audacity. Delete the last half of the show. Brandon Milliken, thanks for doing the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always a lot of fun. Thanks for watching us, guys. Like... Uh, we would probably do the show if we did not have the kind of viewership that we do, which is honestly still like a solid hundred people a week. Well, there it is. It's, it's shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, but we would we wouldn't do not do it every week if we didn't have the viewership that we do. So really, guys, thanks for being on the show, or thanks for watching the show. And remember, Worcester, you can bench more than you think you can. <laughs>